This episode brought to you by Audible, and today you can receive a free audiobook and 30-day free trial by visiting audibletrial.com slash sports. Listen to your audiobook anywhere, anytime. Exploring the impact of sports. Welcome, Welcome to Rich Take on Sports, the sports podcast with life. Having conversations and hearing personal stories from those who have been impacted, built, and inspired by the role of sports in their lives. Here's your host, Richmond Weaver. This is episode 71. I am your host, Richmond Weaver, and glad you're listening through whatever platform that might be. And thanks for being an investor by investing your time to listen. Complacency and passivity both have destructive properties where they can shape certain narratives in life. But you won't find those two words in our guest vocabulary, and that's Rachel Barbeau. She's not complacent, and she's not passive. She was the first female sportscaster to host on the Sirius XM platform, and she can now be heard on ESPNU on Sirius XM channel, and you can also find her heartfelt and intimate sports columns at gridironnow.com. She was recently honored with the distinction of becoming a Heisman voter, and before that, Rachel was the first known female sportscaster to fully participate in a professional football training camp. There's no rest for Rachel, though, as one of her biggest accomplishments is founding Changing the Narrative, or simply known as Hashtag Changing the Narrative, where this movement is helping empower athletes to take back the headlines for good and showing them that they have the power to change the narrative and define their purpose in life outside of their sport. Here's Episode 71 with Rachel Barbeau. Rachel, I can't thank you enough I'm for so spending Yay. time here. It is fantastic <laughs> since so we excited. got to meet at the Daniel Summit. Yes. And, but I've been following you for a while since I started Yay. on this podcasting journey and uh-huh. honored to have you part of this journey. And so I greatly appreciate you spending some time. And I know a big thing that's happening mm-hmm. is just this whole movement you've mm-hmm. got with changing the narrative. But before we dive into that, Let's dive into your narrative mm-hmm. and the sports narrative that you have. So mm-hmm. walk us back to the earliest yeah. memories of sports for you growing up and yeah. how you became so involved in sports. You know, I had two. So we were always a sports household, you know, and uh, and so I was talking to somebody the other day and they were they were laughing. I can't remember who it was, but they were saying, you know, we're not a sports household. Like we don't, nobody plays sports, nobody's athletic. And I remember laughing because that was the complete polar opposite of my life and my um, life growing up. My grandmother was a Braves fan, who's a Falcons fan. I remember she has a beanie that got passed down to me, and it is the most precious thing in the world to me. And it was from the very first year the Falcons were in existence. And so anytime, whether it be when they played the 49ers or they played the Pats or whatever it is, like I wear this beanie and I wear it to church, I wear it everywhere. You know, people are like, that beanie, you know, and I'm like, it's really special. Um so as far as I can remember, there were always sports on. And then my dad was a sports lover. And then my stepdad um, that came into my life when I was around 11, he was an Alabama fan. And so there were always sports around. And then I had two brothers, and I think they really helped to shape my career because they played football, baseball, basketball, archery, tennis, BMX, bike racing, like everything. My poor mom was every, and, and I say poor mom, but she was a great mom, and she was all over the country, literally, because my brother at one time was number two in the country in BMX bike racing. 
the, in the dirt tracks. Wow. And so she was all over the world, really, um, but all over the country, you know, with them. And so I always grew up watching it. And I laugh and say, my claim to fame is church volleyball. You know, I was really good at church volleyball. Like, that's about it. But I went into general assignment reporting. So I always knew I was, you know, uh, enjoyed being in front of people and communicating and all of that. And I thought my grandma thought I was going to be an actress and not so much. And yeah. So did you have specific dreams growing up as far as what your career was going yeah. to be, this being a reporter or something? You know, I didn't know really what that looked like. Then when I went to Auburn, I said, okay, I'm going to be a reporter, a general assignment reporter. And then I quickly realized, man, house fires and car wrecks just are not my bag. Like I am just way too sensitive. I would be bawling every night. Like this would just, this would not work out. Yeah. Your middle name is Joy. Yeah. I'm You're like, Joy. Yes. You, you can't I mean, be can't, in those dark do that. spots. I cannot. And the, the this is a sad uh, story, but it, but it makes sense for my journey. I remember there was a white supremacist group on uh, in Auburn, and they were leaving flyers different places. And I remember going to my editor of the campus TV station, uh, Eagle Eye, and I said, I'll go undercover you know, to the meetings. And he just looked at me and paused. And he was like, Rachel, he was like, you're everything they hate. He was like, aren't you like Indian and Mexican and Spanish and whatever? I was like, oh. You know? <laughs> I was like, okay, yeah. So, I mean, I recognize that I probably didn't have a big career in investigative journalism, um, but I've always been, um, had a heart for other people. You know, where some people can just, you know, they just brush by things casually. Things affect me deeply. Um, I'm empathic. I pick up on people's stuff. And so, you know, I've always had that heart and I've wanted to, to help people and get involved. And sometimes to my own detriment, because I want to help so much, I feel like, and it's, you know, I have to find that balance and keep that. So I originally wanted to do general assignment work. And then really, I think by the grace of God, stumbled into sports. Why Auburn though? Yeah. Um, so my grandmother was near Auburn. My grandfather had just passed away. I was an Auburn. I am an Auburn fan. Uh, my parents wanted me to go to Alabama and I was not an Alabama fan. They had a great journalism school. Um, but I went to Auburn and I fell in love with it. I mean, it's the loveliest village on the plains. It's beautiful. And, and then I was in a sorority and, and all of those things. And I remember I got involved with Diamond Dolls. Um, I think it was like my sophomore or junior year. And it's a really selective process. We were like the, you know, the official representative uh, for the baseball team for Hal Baird. And, and then I got involved with Eagle Eye. And I got sent out to cover a baseball interview. And I'd never done a sports interview in my life. And I remember, this is just the funniest story. I remember he's so close to me. He's like this. And I was so nervous my eyeballs were shaking. They were like twitching and I was sweating and there were people out in the outfield. And I'm like, I mean, I can go back there if I close my eyes. And I remember thinking, if I get through this, there might be something to this, you know? And it was almost the clouds parted. I say this, you know, poetically, but in reality, it was my aha moment. And from that moment forward, I said, I'm going to do this. I'm going to, I'm going to create a career in sports. And I never look back. When you talk about the, the moment the clouds parted, did yeah. you have a a feeling of sense of confidence all of a sudden as well. Yeah. yeah, I did. Like you can do this. You know, this is you feel like you stumbled into this, but you haven't stumbled at all. You know, this was part of God's plan. That's what it felt like. After graduating yeah. Auburn, then what's the pathway then to actually take that and to the next level? You know, it's interesting. Um, I I remember I interned at a television station, and um, and they said, "Well, you can stay on." 
but we don't have anything in sports, so we're just going to have to put you, you know, in regular news. And, and at that moment, I made a really, I think, a pivotal decision in my life. There's been kind of those touchstone moments in my life. And I said, thank you, but no thank you. I'm going to go the freelance route. And I sold, uh, I sold log homes for my parents' company at night. And I worked for almost three years uh, for free in jobs that I did not get paid. And I, at that time, uh, a guy named DJ Jones, he was a cornerback on the national championship team at Georgia. He allowed a young 24-year-old two days on, on a week on a show. I mean, I thought I knew stuff. Like, I, I look back now, I'm like, what was I even talking about? You know, like, wow. And so from there, it went to, then it went to sideline reporter for an AF2 team. And then it went to NASCAR reporter. And then it went to the War Eagle warm-up show, which was the the show before the official show, um, uh, the pregame show at Auburn on football Saturdays. So every little job led to another one that led to another one that led to another one. And I finally got a paying job and was super stoked about it. And You've hit the jackpot I hit now. the jackpot. I mean, afternoon radio, everything's going great. And then about three years later, two and a half years later, with great ratings, the economic downturn of 2008, 2009 hits, wah, wah, wah. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, had a job one day and didn't have a job the next day. This, what was the mindset? Oh my gosh, I think. Is uh, your world come crashing down? Yeah. Oh yeah. And for me, when I talk to young people, and I do a lot, um, obviously, this is the story I tell them. I went home and I cried for about three days. And on the third day, you know, <laughs> um, I pulled myself up my bootstraps and I said, okay, how am I going to do this? And so I called every person uh, in the sports industry that I had been on the radio with, that I had done their radio shows over the years, and I said, keep me on, keep me on, just la- label me a sportscaster, you know, uh, of not, you know, this radio station Columbus anymore. And I went to work at a, a hair salon. I mean, I was managing a hair salon and I would go out in the back and do radio interviews and come back in and manage a hair salon. And a friend of mine at the time, SEC Media Days was coming up. And for sports people, it's the Mecca. You need to get there. Movers and shakers, deals happen. It's just... It's, you need to get there. And so, um, so I called a friend and I said, keep in mind, I'm an Auburn grad, right? And I called a friend and I said, um, I'll do anything. You know, I'll, I'll show up early. I'll stay late. I'll get sound for you. I'll transcribe. I'll do whatever if you would, if you would request a credential for me. And he said, um, okay, I will. And I was like, oh my gosh. And I said, what do you need me to do? And he said, nothing. And I said, really? And so here's the lesson. Even though he needed me to do nothing, I was auditioning for myself. I was auditioning for my future job. I was auditioning, betting on myself. So I showed up every day, 15 minutes early, stayed 30 minutes late. And in this room, if you can imagine, it's the radio internet room at that time, which was, I mean, not very new, but, you know, it wasn't what it is now. And there's about 30 to about 70 people. And the coach comes in, he sits down. He makes an opening statement and then they say go and everybody rushes at the same time. It's all men. Okay. At that time it was really all men. So everybody's asking at the same time. So it sounds like this, I mean, and only the strong survive. So you just start asking and screaming with everybody else and you know, to slow it down, most people fall away and shut up, you know, and then the strongest person just keeps going and the coach is doing this. And then he finally, you know, circles in on you. I got a question into every player and every coach of that SEC Media Days. And at the end of it, a guy taps me on the shoulder and he said, um, I've been watching you. He said, you're really impressive. And I was like, well, thank you. you know. <laughs> and, uh, and he said, how would you like to come to Tuscaloosa and cover the Crimson Tide? And I was like, I said, let me go home and pray about that. You know, let me talk to my family. And um, 
Of course, I, I said, uh, 24 hours later, I said yes. I didn't know a soul in Tuscaloosa. That was in July. In August, I moved there not knowing a soul. I went to work for the Tuscaloosa News, hosted the Cecil Hurt Show, one of the most famous uh, editors, sports editors in, in all of college football history, hosted his show. And then uh, that was August. And in January, I was at the Rose Bowl covering Texas and Alabama. So within that timeline, I mean, that's an amazing yeah. timeline. And it doesn't just happen overnight. Yeah. A lot of grind that oh was going on, <laughs> what you described. Multiple, I mean, you're juggling so many different yeah. things. Was there a time, though, that you thought to yourself, this career that I want to continue in, it's just not going to happen. Yeah. The, the, it's not in my cards right now. And yeah. What was that moment like? I remember um, at my radio station uh, before uh, the economic downturn hit and the, and the advertisement money ran, ran up and that's why they couldn't pay us. I remember we had gotten, and he had, he had been there and then he was gone, but uh, we had gotten a general manager and I was in an office and there was a couple of like desks there and I wasn't snooping. I just happened to look down and literally on the edge of the desk was a memo from this general manager who had just come in to the big boss who had hired me and it said, uh, frankly, she's unlistenable me. She has no sports knowledge. She has no future in this business. And I remember I like, so I, I left and I went to the bathroom and I cried my eyeballs out. And then I went, you have a decision at this very moment right now. You can be who they, they think you are, or you can rise up and show them who you are. And um, I straightened myself up. I dried my eyes. And I feel like that was a seminal moment in my life where, um, where I said, you know, no, I'm not. I, I am better than, than what you think I am. And, and I am not I'm beholden to your opinion of me. And funny enough, that guy called me a couple of years later when I was on Atlanta with Cordell Stewart and, you know, trying to play nice. And I never I had every opportunity to, to rub it in his face and say, I saw that, but I just never did. I just, you know, I just kept moving on with my life. But he came around and he eventually saw my talent. But I, I do remember that. And I remember that was a moment. But let me tell you something. This industry is hard. It is very hard. And many good people have fallen by the wayside. They just said, I'm done with it. I'm done pushing and grinding and fighting and, and, you know, and, and trying to get my name known and saying valid. It's also very subjective. So one person doesn't like you and that one person makes the decisions then, you know, or one person's wife doesn't like you, you know what I mean? Like there's all these scenarios. And so you have to have the thickest skin and I am the most sensitive person. Exactly. So it's hard. So where did this come from mm -hmm. then that you could read something like that, knowing that you are sensitive, and I know it had to yeah. affect you. Oh, it evolved, yeah. But you had the ability to pull up mm -hmm. your boots by the bootstrap, mm -hmm. like you mentioned, mm -hmm. and show these people that, that you were not going to be beholden to that opinion. So mm -hmm. where does that come from in your DNA? Mm -hmm. I think it is my DNA. I think, that's, I think you make a great point. My grandmother was a bartender for 50 years. She waited on Truman Capote, Sonny Smith, Bear Bryant, <laughs> Wimp Sanderson, John Wayne. But for her, people were just the same, no matter if it was a lady of the night, she was outside of uh, Fort Benning in Columbus, or whether it was a, uh, you know, a prostitute or a, or a politician or a movie star, they were all the same to her. And she was a fighter and, um, and just loved people and was a fighter. I remember growing up at Christmas time, there would be literally hundreds and hundreds of Christmas cards and she'd have them so many, she would have to tape them to like the door jams, like all around the doors. And I, now I realize because she was so much about people and she cared so much and she was literally 
like the only version of a Bible that some people saw in the middle of a bar, you know, behind, behind the bar. And so she was a fighter. My mom's a fighter. And I really feel like it was in my DNA, you know, sensitive as I am, it's you can beat me down, but, but I'm going to come back. And God made me that way. My name literally means Rachel means to break through. So to break through a joy. And so you can, you can step on me and you can discredit me and you can lie about me and you can whatever you want to say about me, but I'm going to come back. And, and I know that's partly because of my DNA and partly because of Jesus, yeah. big time because of Jesus. <laughs> uh, of course. Yeah. And, and he has filled a huge void in my yeah. life. Yeah. Uh, I've only been walking in my faith for the past 10 years. Really? Since, you know, so, but one of the voids that I had is I never knew my biological father. And I know you mentioned mm-hmm. a dad and a stepdad. Mm-hmm. So what was your situation? Did you know your Oh my father? gosh, it goes even deeper. And I think this is where some people that, um, that feel a sense of abandonment or feel something missing, um, they'll really relate to this in this podcast. So my dad adopted me when I was 18 months old and he has red hair and freckles. His last name is Barbeau. I lost him in 2014 unexpectedly. He adopted me, but I did not know I'm growing up and my parents got divorced. He and my mom got divorced when I was about eight. And so he was up in Alaska. He was a military man and an army man, career military man. And and he said something like, we're on the phone, and I'm probably like 11, 10, maybe 11 or 12 at the time. He said, yeah, you were at a picnic, and you were one, and I first met you. And I went, what? And it all, and I remember I'd, watch, I'd watched um, stories on adoption, and there would be something that would click in the back of my head, but I looked just like my mom. So I thought, I, what, are, what are they talking about? And so I went in there, and I, I remember, I'll never forget, I said to my mom, I said, what's, you know, what, what is this? And her eyes clouded over a little bit. And she said, you don't remember we told you when you were like five or six. And I said, remember what? And she said, David's not your dad. He adopted you. And I was like, what? And so I, that, I said, you know, and she said, His, your real dad's name is John. And he lives in Atlanta and he's a firefighter. And would you like to meet him? And she said, I'm sure, you know, we could probably try to find him. And I said, I would. And so I met him. Um, and have a relationship with him and uh, met my half brother and sister and met my aunt who's my best friend because of it. And so I had a joke, um, before my dad passed away, I joke, I said, I had my three dads, you know, I had a <laughs> lot of love, but growing up after that, I didn't, you know, I, I had some of those issues those abandonment issues. And, and I think I tried to, I know I tried to fill them with things of the world and had been saved at a young age. And God kept saying to me, you know, I'm the thing that can fill those holes, not anything in this world, not a, not a man, not substances, not anything. I can fill those holes. And I spent many years, and I'm very open about that, trying to fill that with the things of the world until I finally just gave it up to God. And I've never experienced so much joy in the midst of tragedy, sadness. I still have joy. You can't take my joy from me. And, and that's because of Jesus. And for me, not knowing my biological father, it was, I had a very similar situation where for whatever reason growing up, I mean, I had a stepdad, mm-hmm. thought that was my dad. And, but something was always in the back of my mind that, that I just feel different. Yeah. And I don't know what it is, but I remember one day going through, we had this big, it's called a secretary. Yeah. And it was like a big desk yeah. filing cabinet type thing. And I was probably about 13. And I remember opening, I was looking for something and open up this filing, little drawer, whatever. And I saw a birth certificate. Mm. And my name is Robert Richmond Weaver. Okay. 
born May 19th, yeah. 1971. But on this birth certificate, it said Robert Richmond Richardson the third, May 19th, 1971. I was like, wait a second. Wait a minute. What's going on? What is yeah. going yeah. on? And then so I started asking and it was the same thing. My mom was just like, okay, you know, you don't remember yes. being, being in the uh, courthouse and telling the judge that it was okay for Alan Weaver to adopt you. Yeah. And I don't remember that, you know, and I was probably seven years old. Probably, yeah. It's yeah. very, very so, interesting. Same thing. I was throughout my life. I was trying mm-hmm. to fill that void, that mm-hmm. uh, void of not having a father, but mm-hmm. I always had the ultimate father, yeah, the you ultimate know, and it's, father. It, it's a great yeah. uh, joy that I have now, mm-hmm. you know, as well. But I did get connected with my biological yeah. side of the family, but not until my wife and I, when she was pregnant with our right. first child, it hit okay. me. I woke up in the middle of the night and said, I've got to find my biological that. side of the family. And so I, I was that. able to do that. But so let's get back to your no, story. No, so. I, no, I love that. I mean, the parallel, I just, I love it. It's crazy. And with changing the narrative, I wonder if that's something that is why this has become such a movement. Mm-hmm. Because there are these voids. Mm. And I think a lot of it could come back to fathers mm. and so before men become fathers, they're needing this support. So yeah. why do you feel that change in narrative is becoming so popular? I think you hit the nail on the head. I think, um, you know, there, there are so many voids these young people are dealing with. I also think that um, they come to me a lot and they say, I'm having a baby or I just had a baby and I, I know I'm not a king, you know, and you, you have explained to me what that looks like tangibly. You know, what, what does that... What does that entail? What does that look like? And, you know, I think in this world, it's ever increasing in this world uh, that joy is brought through money, through fame, through possessions, through those things. And that's what our media tells us. That's our beauty, you know, brings, brings, uh, brings joy. Uh, Media tells us that social media tells us that we're constantly comparing. Um, We're trying to gather, you know, and keep instead of give away. And I, I go in there and we talk about what true joy feels like because I tell them, listen, I'm not And one of my coaches said this to me, he said, I think why you're so impactful is that you're not preaching at them. You're just telling the story of your life and what's happened to you. And Hey, listen, take it from me. I've been there because, you know, when I got out of, uh, when I was doing radio at that time, before I went on in Tuscaloosa. I was really just me. I was a Christian, but I was very me centered. I was, uh, I wanted uh, to map my name in the headlights. I wanted to work at ESPN. I wanted to be on the sideline. It was me, 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 me. And then years ago, I met a guy named Kevin Turner who was, um, he had ALS. And in the midst of his ALS, instead of, and he had every reason in the book, every excuse in the book to do this um, because he was dying of an insidious disease, he, he could pull the covers up over his head and just say, I'm done, Easily. I am out of here, like leave me alone. But instead he started a foundation, he went to Congress to lobby for people that were sick to have their, you know, their own choices. He fought for the common man that didn't have any notoriety and woman that had ALS. And even in the midst of all that, he saw his humor, he still had joy, he still had laughter. He saw faith, and he taught me, I think, one of the greatest lessons, and that is it's not about you. This life you've been given, it is not about you. And so I am going in there, and I'm speaking to them, to everything that's counter to what, they're, what they know, right? And I think the greatest joy for me is in changing the narrative is 
I believe call somebody who they were created to be and watch them rise up to it. And I say this and I say it would be on a shadow of a doubt. I have literally watched people's souls, young men's souls, just literally rise up to who they were created to be. And, and you call somebody a king and call them by their name who God created them to be and watch them live up to it. And I do it on social media all the time. I'll say, how are you, my king? Or how are you, oh, king? What's going on? Yes. And they retweet it because they want to be called a king and, and they want to be accountable. They want to be accountable to themselves, to somebody else. They want to be good. We all want to be good. I think we all have this innate desire to be good. Um, but some of them, and here's the, I think the most important point is about three or four schools in when I first started this in August of 2016, I was going to schools and I was talking about being a good man. And then one of my coaches uh, said to me, he said, Rachel, we were talking about chivalry. He said, you're going to have to explain what the word chivalry even means. He said, you don't understand. He said, some of them don't even know what it means to be a good man. You don't. It's never been modeled it's to never them. never been modeled. Their mama wasn't good or their daddy wasn't good or one wasn't around or they were. And I, I don't care what color skin you're talking about, what socioeconomic, you know, because they it could come in all sizes and shapes. And so we started to break down what does it mean to be a good man? Um, at the end of the day, what would you have to do to be able to look in the mirror and feel satisfied and feel like you contributed to society? Because I told him, I said, listen, and I stand in front of him and say this. I have been, I vote for the Heisman. I've hosted the college football playoff. I've done some pretty fantastic things, but nothing feels as good as how, how I feel when I stand in front of them because I'm living in my purpose and I want them to find their same purpose, whatever that purpose is, you know, it's with their own change in the narrative. So if I can teach them how good it feels to serve and to find their thing, not just, not just willy nilly serve, find your thing, find your thing that sets your soul on fire and you'll never quit serving. And you have found that and it's a pathway because of sports, Yeah, which I, I think is amazing just in itself. And the other thing that I think is so impactful of what you're doing with changing the narrative is that it's not that you're going and talking to these individuals and these players, but you're equipping them to go back into their communities and teach the younger generation or the next generation. So it's just building from the younger and they're going to listen to these guys because that's who they look up to. You hit the nail on the head. um, So I do it on a school by school basis too. But for example, I do it on a, on an individual basis. So I have a guy, um, his name is Trey Hicks and he played at East Carolina and I just love him. He's one of my Kings. And, um, and he said, "I, I want to do this, Rachel." He was training and training, and training for the for the NFL draft. He did not get drafted. Uh, no, nothing. You know, he didn't get picked up, free agent, nothing. So I said, "Trey, I said, I know that you know this is not you know what you wanted, and uh, but we don't know what God's plan is for you, and it's not always our plan." And, and in the midst of that, even before that was happening, he said. I want to do this. I want to go into high schools because that's, you hit the nail on the head. That's the plan. I can't be everywhere. There's just one of me. And they listen to them. They don't, they're not going to, a 15 year old is not going to listen to me. They're going to listen to Trey Hicks or they're going to listen to Bradley Bozeman or they're going to, they're going to listen to these guys. Right. Uh, And DeAndre Francois, another one of my Kings at FSU. I mean, they're going to listen to these guys. And so I teach them the tenets of changing the narrative, blend it with their own story. Then I also teach them art of public speaking and then they, then I help them get into area high school. So like Trey, we're in the process. Like he sends me a video, he puts his camera up and he does his talk. And then I quote unquote grade it, you know, <laughs> and I give him pointers and, Hey, I think you need to get, get to this faster. You need to do this differently. So then he does it again. And we've done this like four or five times. 
and he'll be ready to do his first talk in August. And there's nothing it's like amazing. that. Like I can't even, yeah. Another one of my Kings, um, Bradley Bozeman, he was a center at Alabama. Uh, he started an anti-bullying campaign and he said, I never would have done this without you. I was bullied. And he said, you made me realize the, you know, the magnitude of my platform. And, and I just talked to him another day and he said, I'm about to start a foundation. And I'm like, Oh my gosh, you know, like that is just amazing. And so, um, just teaching them that sweet spot, where that sweet spot is for them, and teaching them how to operate in it and, and help other people. Best feeling. You're changing lives one person at a time. Amen. It's yeah. very impactful. And with you being a Heisman yeah. voter, yeah. please tell me you voted for Deshaun Watson <laughs> a couple of times. I'm a Clemson grad, so I still feel that Deshaun should have won the oh Heisman. Oh my gosh. He's, yeah, he's, he's, he's pretty amazing. Um, He's pretty fantastic. What's crazy about him was I spoke to Clemson not even 15 days before they dismantled Ohio State. It was my second stop of changing the narrative. And I gave him the bracelets and they said changing the narrative and, and all that. Well, Dabo took it one step further and he, he said, you know, he took the whole Kilimanjaro reference because I climbed Kilimanjaro and they made a movie about it called Climb for Kevin. And so he took it one step further and said, let's climb the mountain. Let's change the narrative of college football, change the narrative of Alabama. Let's knock them off the mountain. So there was, so afterwards people would hear his verbiage in the interviews and they'd go, Rachel, 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 you know, they'd, they'd tag me on social media and they'd message me. And so I was there hosting for the college football playoff and they won. And you feel the sense of pride. You know, you, I, I, I feel connected to all these guys. I mean, I just am. And so I was there as a, you know, as still my host role and, and I was over by the tunnel and I'm taking a picture of Deshaun and, uh, and Taj Boyd and all of a sudden Deshaun looks at me and goes, you, you changing the narrative and he like points at his bracelet and I'm like, and he picks me up and bear hugs me and I started crying. Then like all the coaches are coming by and they're like, changing the narrative, look the bracelet, like, we did it, we did it. And so that ownership just, I mean, I, I said, I wrote an article after that. And I said, I feel like Kevin was on this field today, you know, because you know his son plays on that team. And, and man, it was just had come full circle. You know, it was just the beginning. God was just starting this journey, you know, um, with changing the narrative. But it was so special to see this team embrace it in their own way, but embrace the, the, the message of changing the narrative. They, they accomplished this wonderful thing. And, and for a lot of them, it will always be part of their life. What other words of wisdom has meant a lot to you as we wrap up here that you would like to share? Ooh, that's a good one. Actually, I had something today, uh, interestingly enough. So there's a gentleman named Rodney Smith Jr. that's traveling around the country, 50 states, 50 lawns in 50 states. I know the story. It's okay. fantastic. We just interviewed him and myself and a guy named Chad Dewing have a podcast called Change of the Narrative Podcast. And so we say we're the anti-venom to the venom of life. You know, like you get inundated with these negative stories and we just want to tell positive stories. Sometimes they're about sports, sometimes they're not. Um, sometimes they're fate, sometimes they're not. They're just good stories, make you feel good, make you feel, make you think. And so we had him on and he, you know, he, he, he mows his lawns and he's a social worker and he does these wonderful things. And we're interviewing him and he said something so profound that was so simple, but he said, I said, do you get it that like you are the only Bible that some people might ever see. You're like a Bible with skin on it. And that these people are out there, these elderly, these single mothers, they're praying for a miracle and you show up. Like, do you get that? And he said, um, I can't remember who he said told him this, but he said, I thought about it the other day and I'm kind of like a horse race with the blinders on. And he said, 
God told me not to look at any, to worry about anything around me. Just worry about what's in front of me and worry about running my race. And I was like, woo! It was so simple, Richmond, but it was so powerful. It was like, yes, it is. When we get inundated, and I even, you know, and I was telling my my co host today, I said, I just had one of those days where I put myself in the corner, you know? I I needed an attitude adjustment. I was like, I'm going to check out for about 30 minutes, and I'm going to just, okay? Because that's life. It's life, you know? And I was just, and the devil loves him. And he was just, you know, every little thing he could today. So I said, okay, Lord, I'm going to listen to some praise and worship music. I'm going to put myself in the corner. But I was still kind of funky, you know, I was still like in a little bit. Of, and so we get on this podcast with him and he just finished with Good Morning America. You know, I'm like, he's like, can I bump you for Good Morning America? I'm like, yes, you can. I'm like, that's okay. Well, if you must. Well, if you must. I'm like, no, we want to be before Good Morning America. So anyway, so we do this interview and he said that. And then... It just, I mean, it just rocked me to my core and it made me think, keep the blinders on Rachel and just keep on your race. And he also said something super powerful. He said, I haven't really read the Bible, but I know Jesus and I love him. And he said, he's my friend. And I was like, and he's out there serving. He's out there serving elderly and the needy. And um, so I would just say to anybody, and I steal this from Rodney Smith Jr., mm-hmm. I'm going to give him credit. Um, put your blinders on like a racehorse and don't worry about what's around you. Don't worry about what's behind you. Just worry about what's in front of you. Yeah. And so why do you love sports so much? Yeah. Ooh, um, I love the human element of it. Um, I, I learned a long time ago that everybody has a story to tell. And um, some people just need a little bit of help telling it. And so I learned that a long time ago. I, I love the adrenaline and, and the action and the art of the game and the strategery. I laugh when I say that. But, I mean, I love, you know, I call offense, defense, special teams, and head games, like the fourth, you know, aspect of football. I love sports. I'm covering the College World Series now. I love sports. But the human element of it, and I realized a long time ago, I think this is something that I want people to take away from this, whether it's serving or whatever it is, if you're, you know, your passion, you're doing it at night while you're working, another, find your sweet spot. Find something that sets your soul on fire. Because for me, I recognized a long time ago, and I love him to death. He's a friend of mine, but I'm not a Paul Feinbaum. You know, I'm not, I'm not, that's not my personality. I enjoy telling the human interest stories. I enjoy telling, you know, the back stories. I enjoy telling um, the stories of overcoming. I enjoy the, the human interest, heartwarming stuff. And over the years, I've written for Gridiron now, and I'm in the process of writing a book, and and I've had people tell me, I needed that. We need that. Like, we need more good, positive stuff. I'm like, well, my middle name is Joy, you know? <laughs> I'm like, so most days I feel that, you know? So, that, but I'm operating in my sweet spot, you know? If I were out there writing gotcha pieces or, you know, headlines or whatever, and I've always, um, I think the thing that's worked for me is I've always put the relationship over the byline, the headline, the job, anything. If it's going to destroy my relationship, if it's going to destroy, um, you know, somebody I care about or uh, trust that I built, then I don't care about a job or a headline or a piece. Like I just don't care about it. And I mean, truth be told, probably I'd say over 50%, probably 60% of the jobs I've gotten in my career and opportunities have come my way or partly because people liked me and they knew I was a hard worker and they knew I had a good attitude and they liked working with me. It was yes, because of my ability, but it was my attitude and my likability as well. And so I just, you know, put people first, 
find your sweet spot, um, and you'll you'll never go wrong if you do that. Relationships yeah. are paramount. Everything. That's what I say. They're and everything. Just the opportunity of being able to sit here with you yeah. is an honor, and I thank you so much. <laughs> and just now that we're connected, I yeah, it's. I know it's going to be that uh, situation. We'll we'll have a relationship for Amen. quite a while. So and thank you say, so much. And I want to say this: um, I am was I read a story about you last night. I'm so inspired that you followed, you found your what sets your soul on fire, and you rediscovered that, and you actually probably never forgot it. And you followed that, and I think it's beautiful what you've done and winning the, the opportunity to go host and then to becoming a host and then starting your podcast. Like right. that's inspiring. Like you need to go talk to like high schools too. Well, like thank talk you. to kids about that. Like that's amazing. I don't know if they want to hear my story, but I do appreciate <laughs> you saying that. But it's been an honor having you. you on the podcast here. Thank and you. next time, I'm bringing my clubs up here. Please get out there and play Please. with you at this beautiful yes. course. Old Hickory, it is a beautiful track. This is my happy place. The funniest part is you said, where should we meet? And I said, well, my happy place <laughs> is Old Hickory. And it's awesome. And yeah, this is the, uh, this is, it's a beautiful, beautiful track here. Yes, it is. Rachel, thank, thank you, you so much. Thank you. Narratives aren't always easily changed because you're dealing with the innermost feelings and opinions of people, and you never know how those feelings or opinions have been shaped in a person's life. And Rachel, she could have easily let certain narratives shape her future, but it's obvious that she wasn't going to let that happen. And if we can all focus on a purpose just like that and with the narrative changing, we just might see more joy. Now that finishes episode 71, and remember, focus forward so we don't live in the past. All the best, everyone. You've been listening to Rich Take on Sports, the sports podcast with life. Visit richtakeonsports.com to subscribe and catch up on any episodes you might have missed. You can also follow us on Twitter at Rich Take Sports. Thanks for listening.